0: Well, let's turn back to the book of Ecclesiastes that we read earlier. And we're really, this morning, just going to take a look at the first couple of verses of this book. And in these two verses, I think here we have an introduction to what this book is really all about. And first of all, they tell us about the person who wrote this book. And this is a very important thing to understand. It's important that we get a grasp of the man that wrote this book. Because although ultimately we know there's this book, like the rest of scripture, is written under the influence of God's Holy Spirit, it is the experiences of this human author that is detailed within it. It is his lessons that he is intending to use to teach us. If I can put it this way, he's intending that we learn from his mistakes. And in verse 2 we have sort of an introduction to the book, a summary of what he's going to say. But in saying that, I must also state, as we'll come on to later, if we take that verse in isolation, we're in danger of missing the whole point of this book. So there is a very important exception to what he says in verse 2. So, to start with, let us think about the author of this book. Who was it that wrote this book? Why is it that we are to listen to what he has to say? What are his credentials, if you like? What qualifies him to bring this teaching to us? Well, in verse 1 we are told that this book is the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And in itself this introduction is slightly intriguing because note it does not categorically tell us who was responsible for writing the book. The author comes tantalisingly close to calling himself Solomon but he does not actually do so. Nevertheless, the traditional view is that this book was written by Solomon and there is plenty of evidence within this book to support that. And as we look through this evidence, I'd like you to remember something of it as we read through it and think about it, as we think about this man and the things that he has done, because we're going to return to some of that when we think later about verse 2. Well, in verse 1, the author describes himself as the son of David and as the king in Jerusalem. And I think Solomon is the man who immediately springs to mind when we think about this. He fulfills both these conditions. He is a son of David, and he has reigned as king in Jerusalem. And even if we take that phrase, son of David, to mean a descendant of David, as we know it is used in other places in Scripture, the Lord Jesus himself was called son of David, wasn't he? Yet if we think about this idea of the son of David, who else can say that they reigned as king in Jerusalem? It's a very short list, isn't it? But as we read through this book, we see other descriptions of this man as well, and we can compare them with details of what we know about Solomon. Perhaps, most obviously, towards the end of chapter 1, we read in verse 16 that the author thought to himself, "'I communed with mine own heart, saying, "'Lo, I am come to great estate,' And have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. And this is perhaps the thing that Solomon is most well known for, isn't it? If we turn to 1 Kings chapter 3, we can read about Solomon asking for wisdom. Early in his reign, the Lord appeared to him in a dream and told him that he would give him whatever he asked for. Just think of that. God appears to you in a dream and says, You can have whatever you want. Surely it's a sign of the sinfulness of our own hearts that the thing that would most immediately spring to mind for us is not what Solomon asked for. Solomon asked for wisdom, and that is what he received. 1 Kings 3, verse 12, God says this to Solomon, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. There will never again be anyone like Solomon. There will never again be anyone who has his wisdom. So when the author of Ecclesiastes says that he grew and increased in wisdom more than anyone who ruled over Jerusalem before him, it must be Solomon, because there has never been anyone wiser. And Solomon's wisdom became legendary even in his own lifetime. In 1 Kings chapter 4 we read, Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman and Chalcol and Dada the sons of Mahol, And his fame was in all nations around him. And we read later in the book of 1 Kings just how far this fame spread. In chapter 10 of that book, we read about the visit of the Queen of Sheba. Having questioned Solomon and having had the guided tour of all that he had achieved, this is her pronouncement. She said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. And this brings us on to the next evidence for Solomon being the author of Ecclesiastes. Because we read that this author of Ecclesiastes had acquired great wealth. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 7 to 9. I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle, above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold, and a peculiar treasure of kings and of provinces. I get me men-singers and women-singers, and the delights of the sons of men, as musical instruments and that of all sorts. And this is exactly what we see if we read through the whole of the account of the visit of the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10. Not just in wisdom, but also in wealth, he far exceeded all the reports that she had heard. The writer of Ecclesiastes also describes how he undertook great building projects. Chapter 2 he says, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. I made me pools of water, to water wherewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. And perhaps when we think of great building projects, the temple that Solomon built to the Lord immediately springs to mind. But if we look at 1 Kings 7, we can read of at least three palaces that he built. In verse 1 of that chapter, we read it took Solomon 13 years to complete the construction of his palace. But it appears that this is not the only palace that he was building. Because it doesn't look like this is the one that he was intending to live in. A few verses later, having described the incredible extent of that palace that was built, we read in verse 8, And his house where he dwelt had another court within the porch, which was of the like work, of the same construction, of the same size. And then we read later, Solomon made also a house for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken to wife, like unto this porch. So what we read in Ecclesiastes about this man undertaking great building projects also fits in with what we hear about Solomon in 1 Kings. But finally, we are told the writer of Ecclesiastes also collected proverbs and set them in order to teach the people. And we find that towards the end of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12 and verse 9. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out, and set in order many proverbs. In 1 Kings chapter 4, we are told that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs. And some of the proverbs that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes are similar to those found in the book of Proverbs, which we are told was explicitly written by Solomon. But despite this overwhelming evidence, there are some people that do not accept Solomon as author of Ecclesiastes. And they point perhaps to the books of Proverbs and the Song of Songs, where Solomon is explicitly named as the author. Proverbs 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. The Song of Solomon 1, verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So why is this book different? Why is it that Solomon isn't explicitly named as the author? Or perhaps it is because there is no need. Who else could it be? We have already read in 1 Kings 3 verse 12 where God not only tells him he will give him a wise and discerning heart but also that there will not be anyone like him before or anyone after him who will be like him. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the preacher tells us that he's grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled in Jerusalem before him. And so you cannot accept both of those verses as being true, unless Solomon is the preacher who wrote this book. But perhaps there is another reason. In his book, The Old Testament Explained and Applied, Gareth Crosley suggests there may be another reason why he does not name himself as the author. And he says this in his book, he says, Why this silence? Why no open declaration that it is by Solomon? As much of it is autobiographical. Maybe he was too ashamed to put his name to it. And as we look through this book, perhaps we could accept that as an explanation. Because too often we can be guilty of having a one-dimensional view of people in the Bible... There is a danger that we can think of them as some sort of infallible superheroes. We look at the good things that are written about them. We think about Solomon being wise. But this is not true, is it? They are not infallible people. And the Bible paints the complete picture of people, walks and all. We may think of Solomon as being wise and therefore godly, but he was by no means perfect. We read in 1 Kings chapter 11 of the final years of his reign, how he had foolishly married many foreign women and how they led him astray, of how they caused him to worship other gods. We read about the adversaries the Lord raised up against him to punish him. But it is important that we have this rounded picture of Solomon as we consider what he writes here in this book of Ecclesiastes. Because this book is not written by a philosopher, It's not written from a purely theoretical perspective. It's not some dry academic thesis. This book is written by someone who has been there and done that. He had the position, the opportunity, the wealth, everything he needed to indulge himself in every way. And it seems from what is written in this book that he did. And what is his conclusion? What does he learn from all these things that he has tried? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The NIV translates this slightly differently meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Here is a man who has tried all that this world has to offer. What is his verdict? Everything is vain. Everything is meaningless. And it's an import, it is important we have this understanding of who wrote this book. Because, as I just touched upon, it makes a difference to how we view the contents. This is written by someone who is drawing on his own experiences of the things that he has tried to make himself happy. He is not talking about things that have happened to somebody else. He is talking about things that happened to him from first-hand experience and he wants us to learn from his lessons. He doesn't want us to make the same mistakes. And really as we move on to verse 2, we see here both an introduction to the message of the book but also a summary of the message of the book. It is repeated in chapter 12 and verse 8 just before the preacher announces his conclusions. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. But what are we to understand by that phrase? What does the preacher mean when he describes everything as being vanity or as being meaningless? Well, the trouble is, neither of these translations really gets to the bottom of what the preacher is trying to say here. That word that is translated either vanity or meaninglessness is hard to translate exactly in this context. And literally, the Hebrew word that is used here has the, word, has the meaning of vapour. It describes something fleeting or elusive. It's like a mist. You try and grab hold of it and it just slips through your fingers. It's like bubbles that a child blows on a, day, on a sunny day and they can see these beautiful bubbles and want to grab hold of them. But as soon as they do that, they pop, don't they, and just disappear. And the preacher is saying that everything in this world is like that. He brings this out, thought out again a little later in verse fourteen. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Again, this is translated slightly differently in the NIV. It describes that phrase vexation of spirit is actually described as a chasing after the wind. That's a vivid picture, isn't it? When you think about chasing after the wind, you can't even see the wind. How are you supposed to chase after it, to catch it, to grab hold of it? But this is the reality of what people are trying to do. They are chasing after the wind. Everything is meaningless. And as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, we can see something of what the preacher tells us of what he has tried to bring meaning to his life. We've thought about some of these things already, but... Just to go very quickly through and see some of the things that he's tried. End of chapter 1, he tells us about the way he devoted himself to study. He tried studying and learning, trying to acquire yet more wisdom. And he tells us that he has acquired much of wisdom and knowledge. But he says he's also gone to the other extreme, if you like. He's studied madness and folly. Chapter 2, he tells us he's tried losing himself in pleasure getting drunk and embracing folly. He tells us that he has undertaken great projects, building houses and planting gardens. He has acquired great wealth. He has denied himself nothing. But we have seen also that he has had uh, times of thinking, of reflection. He has contemplated death and recognised that this is the ultimate end for everyone. He subjected himself to labour laments that all his hard work will be for nothing because as he's already thought about death will come in the end all these things that he has labored and strived for will be for someone else's benefit he saw that even his position had no meaning because it could so easily be taken away from him he thought about riches and possessions but realized that that if that is what you love you can never have enough And finally, after all that, he's driven to the conclusion that everything is meaningless. It can have no substance. It can never satisfy. But there's something else he thinks about as well, and that's it doesn't really matter what he does because it doesn't really have any impact on things around him or any lasting effect. Look at chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. But the earth abideth for ever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to the place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Everything just continues. Everything just goes on as it was before. It doesn't matter what he does. The sun is still rising and setting. The wind is blowing round and round. Generations are coming. Generations are going. The rivers are running down into the sea, but they're not filling the sea up. Everything's just going on. It doesn't matter what he does. It's having no impact on the bigger picture, if you like. He's powerless to change anything. Everything he has tried is meaningless, pointless, futile, vain. Are you finding this depressing yet? It is seriously depressing when we look at it from that perspective, isn't it? What is the point? Can we ever be happy? Can we ever find meaning? But this is the danger of taking an unbalanced view of this book. Taken in isolation... That view is pretty depressing. That verse is pretty depressing. But you see, when the preacher is talking about the meaninglessness of life, the vanity of life, he always qualifies it. And this book is perhaps well known for the way it talks about life being meaningless or pointless or vain. But there are almost always other phrases that accompany it. The phrase under the sun, which occurs 29 times, the phrase upon the earth, Which appears seven times, and the phrase under the heavens, which occurs three times. So, when the author is talking about the meaninglessness of life, he is talking about a life that is lived purely in earthly or natural terms, an unregenerate life, a life that is lived without reference to God. And this thought has been taken up by others. St. Augustine said, Thou hast made us to thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. The 17th century mathematician, physicist, inventor and theologian, Blaise Pascal, said this, What does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? But there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. And this is frequently quoted in a much simplified form which perhaps you've heard. In every man there is a God-shaped whole. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And what the author of Ecclesiastes and these other men have recognised is there is nothing in this world that can truly satisfy us. If we are looking to the things of this world to bring our life meaning, then we will always be disappointed. We will always be looking for more. We are looking in the wrong place, the wrong dimension, if you like. This desire is given to us by God. He wants us to seek him. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul is preaching at the meeting of the Areopagus, he says this to them. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. And this desire we have, this craving, this this idea that there must be something more, shows that there is a problem with this world and that problem goes right back to creation man was created to have fellowship with God and when we read the account of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 we can see that man once enjoyed this close relationship with God but that relationship was spoiled when sin entered the world Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam, Where art thou? It seems from these verses that the Lord came and walked with man and talked with him face to face. They enjoyed fellowship together. But when sin came into the world, that special bond was broken, that special relationship was spoiled. But the desire for that relationship remains. And that's why we can never be truly happy if we're relying on the things of this world. That aching we have within us, the sense that there must be something more, the fact there seems to be something missing, is an acknowledgement that we were made for this relationship with God. So how are we able to have that relationship again? Well it was sin that spoiled that relationship and so it is the problem of sin that must be dealt with. And God himself has provided the way. He sent his son into this world to die on the cross and to take the punishment for our sin. We are sorry for our sin. If we are sorry for our rebellion against God then when Jesus died he took the punishment for us. He paid our debt, the price that we should have paid. But the most wonderful thing about this is that he removed that barrier between us and God and that we can once again enjoy that relationship that we were made for. And if we look through the book of Ecclesiastes, we find the things the preacher has tried to give meaning to his life, the things that he has found meaningless. But he also gives us advice on on living life by the use of Proverbs. And he tells us there what we must do to give meaning to our life. And as we come to the final chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, we have his summary and conclusion. What do we need to do? Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember now thy creator in the days of the youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou wilt say, I have no pleasure in them. We are to remember our creator, we are to turn back to him, we are to seek him. And the sooner the better, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Because it is only when we turn back to our creator, when we seek his forgiveness, have our sins forgiven and our relationship restored, that we will find true meaning and happiness in this life. What is the conclusion the author of this book comes to? Well, we find in chapter 12 and verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. How are we to have meaning in our life? Well, we are to remember our creator. We are to fear God and to keep his commandments. We are to recognize that there will be a judgment we will be a call to account for what we have done. And at this point, let us just think about our world today. What is the greatest tragedy that is happening? And if you listen to the news, people will have different ideas, won't they? Is it the deaths that are being caused by this pandemic? Is it man's inhumanity to man, whether through racial discrimination or the brutality of war? No, the greatest tragedy of our age is the pointlessness of people's lives. Lives that are lived without God and without hope. Lives that will end ultimately in hell. And the tragedy can really be seen in the events of this past year, can't it? Has this time of pandemic and lockdown had any effect on people? Well, sadly, in one sense, we can say yes we are going to feel the effects for a long time to come. People's mental health has been affected. People have lost their livelihoods and there are unknown effects, perhaps, of the long-term effects of this disease. But also, perhaps there has been no change. Just look at the things we've seen. As lockdown came to an end earlier in the summer, people were once again trying to find meaning in the things of this world. The opening of fast food outlets are greeted with delight. When McDonald's reopened at the beginning of June, there were places where people were queuing for more than an hour. At some branches, it was reported there would be more than 100,000 people visiting on that first weekend. When non essential shops reopened, note that carefully non essential shops were reopened. People started queuing hours before they were due to open. And I'm sure we remember seeing pictures on the news earlier in the summer where people are rushing in, crowding in with no regard for danger to their health or the health of others. And why? So they can get stuff that cannot and will not ultimately satisfy them. Do you not find that a tragedy? People are longing for things to go back to normal. So, they can try and find meaning in their lives in an endless round of buying and consuming. And the author of Ecclesiastes tells us what they will eventually realise meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But shouldn't this be a wake up call to those of us that are Christians? We have found true meaning to our lives, we have the secret of happiness, if you like. We know what it takes to give meaning to this life and hope for the next. And whilst it is true, there are many restrictions on us at this time. Shouldn't we be asking ourselves why we are not making more of an effort to share the good news? Particularly when we remember it's not just about this life. It's not just about people finding meaning and happiness in this life. It's also about their eternal destiny. Shouldn't this spur us on to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for them? Do we think so little of our friends and neighbours, our family even, that we are prepared to abandon them to a life of futility and an eternity in hell? Let us seek every opportunity we are given to tell them the good news. Let us pray constantly and fervently for them that their eyes would be opened and that they would seek their creator and have their relationship with him restored. But finally and briefly, I would like to think about what the preacher has to say to those of us that are Christians. We too are to heed the lessons of this book. Let us not think that because we are Christians we have nothing to to hear from this book, that the author has nothing to say to us. Remember, this book is written by Solomon. A man who has given amazing wisdom by God. And yet here we have this account of him trying to find satisfaction in the things of this world. And is there not a danger that even as Christians we can do this? And I'm not here just simply talking perhaps about physical possessions. Perhaps there are other things, other goals that we have in our life that we think will make us happy. That will bring meaning to our life. I don't know if we have any runners here this morning. We have a number of runners at my own church. And I was going to say, for runners out there, perhaps it's it's breaking that elusive time target on your park run. Or perhaps for some of us it's just the opportunity to go out shopping without having to wear a mask. Without having to worry about people coming too close. And there's nothing wrong with some of these things. But it's just the perspective we have with them. These are not the things that we should be seeking to bring happiness, to bring meaning to our lives, because ultimately they are not going to satisfy us. Once someone has achieved their running target, what happens? Well, they look to improve upon it. They set themselves a new target, don't they? When we go out and buy things, so often they get consumed. We use them up or they wear out or they break. Whatever it is that we are looking forward to being able to do again... We need to remember that these earthly things are never going to bring us meaning. We need to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord and seek him to serve and seek to serve Him wholeheartedly. Because our lives will only have meaning if we seek that relationship with God that we were created for. But at the same time, having said that, we need to remember that these things are not necessarily bad in and of themselves. It is simply we should not be looking to them to give our lives the meaning that can only be found in our relationship with God. In chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, the preacher tells us that God has given us all of these things for our enjoyment. Behold, that which I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink, and to enjoy the good of all his labour that he taketh under the sun, all the days of his life which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labour, this is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. There is nothing wrong with us enjoying the good gifts that God has given us, that is what the author says but we do need to be careful that we are not looking to them to give us meaning. So what are we to learn from this book of Ecclesiastes? Well, let us take to heart the lessons of this preacher. He has tried all that this world has to offer and has found it meaningless, pointless, futile, vain, a chasing after the wind, The things of this world cannot bring us meaning, they cannot bring us satisfaction. We must look to our creator and to seek him, to seek that relationship that we were created for. But at the same time, we are not to despise the blessings that God has given us in this world. But also, we are to seek to tell others how they too can find meaning in their lives, and more importantly and eternity with God.